Hello everyone, this is Tom Fox, and I would like to welcome you to the newest addition to the Compliance Podcast Network from the Editor's Desk, a podcast where myself and Dave Leefort, Editor-in-Chief at Compliance Week, unpack some of the top stories which have or will appear in Compliance Week each month. We look at the top compliance stories, talk some sports, and generally try to solve the world's problems. In this episode, we discuss the Compliance Week survey and articles on the survey inside the mind of the CCO looking at the gender pay gap, compliance role in ESG, and the compliance role in ransomware and cybersecurity. We take a look at some of the upcoming stories from the ESG Focus in the December magazine and discuss a best practices forum to handle a ransomware attack, which will be presented. I know you'll enjoy this podcast. From the Editor's Desk is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Welcome to another edition of the From the Editor's Desk, a podcast where we unpack some of the top stories which have or will appear in Compliance Week. Look at top compliance stories, talk some sports, and generally try to solve the world's problems. I'm your co-host, Tom Fox. And I'm Dave Leefort, Managing Director at Compliance Week. Uh, Happy to join you here today, Tom, to talk about some of the stories that we've been working on, some of the things that we are working on, and uh, a lot of the things that we're excited about uh, moving forward. So let's uh, let's get to it. So what uh, what were some of the top stories from Compliance Week in January 2022, Dave? So it's funny because it's it's very rare that Compliance Week, a, a sort of a small B two B, very specific targeted business journal, essentially. Uh, it's very rare that we've got a, we have a story that goes viral. But earlier this month, we uh, we had just that. We had um, Jacqueline Ye- Jacqueline Jager wrote a uh, essentially it was a, it was an analytical and, and very well reported piece about the DOJ's uh, investigation into short sellers, and in particular, the DOJ has subpoenaed uh, several. Um, hedge funds about the interplay between hedge funds and investment research firms. So essentially it's the phenomenon of hedge funds deciding to short sell a particular stock and then hiring a research firm to publish uh, a negative report about said stock. So that inevitably after the report comes out, the, the hedge fund has already shorted the stock the report comes out, the stock gets devalued, and the hedge fund, uh, the hedge fund's decision to short the stock pays off in a big way. So the investment community has been sort of up in arms in this, for, up in arms about this for a long time, and it hasn't gotten a ton of attention. So the DOJ's decision to look into this and our our decision essentially to, to shine a spotlight on this and say like, hey, this is you know this is long overdue. Uh, we, we sort of, we gained some fans in the, um, in the online world of, uh, of investing. So we, we, we sort of, we went viral on, in some Reddit forums and Jacqueline gained a lot of fans. Uh, so, um, it was interesting. Um, and we, we had some, we had one, uh, one lawyer commented, uh, essentially said that he believes that it's the biggest commercial fraud in U.S. history. And it makes the Bernie Madoff scheme look like a gnat on an elephant's behind. That was the direct quote. So, um, 
I, I myself, I, I mean, I didn't, I don't know enough about it to know if it's that big. So he may just be talking, um, uh, you know, he may be exaggerating for the purpose of emphasis, but, um, you know, it's definitely, you know, it's hit my radar. I know I saw this happen to GE a few years ago and it's happened to a lot of companies. So, um, companies now, companies that have felt targeted for years and investors that have felt, um, shorted for years are, or sort of, uh, you know, they're seeing a little bit of light here now that the DOJ is is actually investigating this. So we'll see how that goes. But um, it was interesting that that, that story in particular uh, sent our traffic through the roof in ways that we don't normally see because it, it caught on in other in some uh, some online communities. Um, the other thing I wanted to to call attention to was this. You know, we we, we sort of have been. Uh, I've been talking a lot and a lot of, you know, the, the industry in general has been talking a lot about ESG gaining momentum and in particular ESG reporting and setting a, uh, you know, the SEC is looking at um, setting a consistent uh, reported, sorry, disclosure framework. Um, the, a few, a couple of weeks ago, the BlackRock CEO in his annual letter, of course, BlackRock being the, the world's largest fund. So obviously the CEO has a lot of influence. So, um, so the, the CEO came out asking companies to set short, medium, long-term targets for greenhouse gas reduction. So essentially it's, it's, uh, calling for all companies to essentially step up and disclose their, what they're doing to help resolve uh, help combat, sorry, um, climate change. Um, so that's that's very much in line with what you know. Regu- what what I think and what we're what we think regulators are moving toward is a is a uh, a mandatory disclosure framework. Um, we think that's that's what the SEC is up to, and we see that coming in the near. Well, I guess the not distant future. So it was interesting to see that the BlackRock CEO um, came out with similar comments, although. Equally interesting was, is BlackRock's stance that they're they're not totally divesting themselves of all fossil fuel companies. Uh, so that's an interesting twist in that story too. So Dave, I interviewed um, someone from State Street Global on uh, s- some of these issues, and and uh, we talked. He talked about divestiture, and as the way he explained it, uh, State Street wants to engage with the companies they invest in rather than have them divest because they believe if it's divested, it'll go into the private equity market and there'll be less oversight, less public scrutiny. And that um, in many ways, it just, it doesn't help move the ball forward on climate or uh, carbon neutral as he, he praised it. So that uh, actually when, and they kind of explain it and really talk about the engagement that moving from, dark brown to light brown is is actually a positive because it allows you then to move to the next step. So uh, I find that very interesting as well. But let me ask you on the short sellers. Uh, I saw your piece and I remember that quote from that lawyer. Um, but we've had short sellers who have done, frankly, yeoman's job. Uh, I would specifically think of Wirecard. Uh, there's a well-known research firm called Muddy Waters, which if you're a blues person. Yes you immediately resonate with the name. 
but there's some very reputable firms and they're very reputable investors <laughs> who have talked uh, or who have taken short positions and explained uh, the positions they've taken uh, as well. And so I'm a little, I don't, I don't know if concern would be right, but uh, it seems to me there are instances where short sellers do uh, what the market suggests, which is that if you find a problem and you identify it, it allows people like you and me, just investors, to make a decision that, no, I don't want to to buy that stock, or if I have it, I want to sell it. So was there any uh, kind of discussion around any po- positive benefits, if any, of short sellers? Oh, absolutely. Look, and I, I'm, I'm not, I don't, I don't mean to, um, you know, give all short selling or all uh, research firms a bad name here. It's just that there is, uh, there is a phenomenon that exists where of, of essentially, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll go ahead and just call it bad actors that, that will do this with intent. And the intent is, is, isn't necessarily to, to shine a spotlight on companies that they believe are not doing the right thing, but rather they see an opportunity to, to, to short sell a stock and, uh, and then hire a research firm to do this work for them with, with, without that, um, I would say, uh, ethical intent, like their intent is to, is to make money based on the, on the report and not to, uh, really enact change within the company itself. So that's the that's the phenomenon that I'm talking about here, and that's the thing that's the that the DOJ is looking into now. How you identify one from the other is difficult because any hedge fund that would hire a research firm to short a or sorry to, to write a research report about a stock, you know they're they're going to say that they have the the best intentions of the investor and of the uh, essentially of the American public, if you will, in mind when they do this. But not all of them are telling the truth. I think it's a matter of, uh, you know, and that's why these the, these individuals and these companies were subpoenaed to find out what they can gather in terms of information on what was the, you know, what was the motivation behind shorting the stock and hiring the, you know, the, the research firm to, to, to write the report. So let's move to uh, articles that are going to come out in February, and I don't want to take your thunder away, but there's a great series that appears next week, uh, beginning January 31st, and I can't wait to read it. So why don't you tell us what's coming? So we have we have a case study coming out that is uh, essentially a an end-to-end fictional story about a electrical company called Vulnerable Electric that gets hit with a ransomware attack. Uh, it is ba- it's fictional, but it is based on real life events, sort of like ripped from the headlines, if you will, to steal a phrase from Law and Order. Uh, it, so uh, Allie McDevitt, our case study writer, she interviewed uh, more than a dozen people from FBI agents to uh, an ethical hacker to a someone with expertise on the on the dark web. Uh, to uh, chief, a chief information security officer, to a, a, just a general um, line worker, to uh, I'm just trying to, to, to think which which among them I've missed. Uh, oh, to also one of the most interesting interviews was with a, a ransomware negotiator. So there are people who specialize in uh, in ransomware negotiations. So essentially, based on all of her interviews. She constructed a, and also based on you know what's been in the headlines, 
and in particular, what we saw with you know the Colonial Pipeline um, ransomware incident. Uh, there's a essentially invented a company, Vulnerable Electric, whose systems were hit with a, a ransomware attack via a, uh, a phishing attack on a uh, on a lo- uh, essentially a administrative assistant to the the head of HR. So it goes through exactly what what happens within this organization. And again, it's all based on realistic scenarios and how companies have actually reacted. Um, and the reason we took this approach was because we couldn't get any one company to sort of walk us through the whole process. But, you know, we talked to a lot of companies on background and off the record, and we essentially got a very, very clear view on what is the, what is the right way to do this and what is the what is the wrong way to do this and what are the mis- what are the opportunities for mistakes that could be made that's really the takeaway here is there are certain points in this like from from day 1 when the you know in this story the employee decides not to reveal right away that she thinks she clicked on a sp- suspicious link which essentially allowed the the ransomware to embed itself into the systems to w- what was the discussion like around, uh, you know, once, once it is discovered and they get this, what's called a splash screen where, you know, the, the whole company is informed that, Hey, we have control of your systems. You need to pay us. I think it's $6 million, whatever the, whatever the number is, uh, or else we're going to sell, uh, all of your employees data on the dark web. So there are some, you know, very real, uh, conversations that take place within the organization. We, we identify who the stakeholders are at the table what the considerations are for those stakeholders, and stake by stakeholders, I mean uh, employees, customers, um, uh, the uh, obviously shareholders, um, and uh, and regulators as well. So it's it's essentially what those conversations are like, what factors are taken into consideration when dealing with such an attack, and then we go through multiple decisions. So we have one scenario where, uh, and I'm, you know, I'm not going to give away any spoilers here, but there's one scenario where they decide not to pay the ransom. And there are some very real um, impacts because of that. And then there's another scenario where they, they do pay the ransom. And again, there are some very real uh, side effects that come with that as well. So there's the good with the bad in both scenarios. And it gives a very... Um, a very accurate, very real depiction of the risk versus reward of the decision-making process on when, when a company is hit with a ransom attack, a ransomware attack, because you're essentially deciding between the lesser of two evils. And how do you know which is the lesser of the two evils? And that's not, it is never an easy decision. And I think that's the ultimate conclusion is that this is, these are not easy decisions that have to be made, but they often have to be made on a very, strict timetable. The, t- the, the, the hackers are the ones that own the timetable, and they do that for a reason. And they, and they oftentimes know if you have cyber insurance, and they often also know uh, how much cyber insurance you have. So they'll base, they'll ransomware demand on your level of, of cyber insurance. So, you know, it's some of the takeaways are, you know, it's always great to have all your information in an old school binder, all of your policies, procedure on what happens when we're hit with a ransomware attack, to have it in paper form because if you can't access your systems and you don't have it on paper, you're you're in some trouble. Um, it also helps to run um, to run simulations. 
it also helps to run consistent trainings. And, I, and again, there are there are so many takeaways here um, from this particular story uh, that will be that are incredibly useful for anyone, really, but especially for people in compliance who have a have some stake in cybersecurity. Um, so it's we're, so we are we're really excited about this. It's going to launch on. Uh, I think the beginning of next week over the course of four days, it's a seven part series. Uh, we encourage members to uh, it. So it's available to members only, but we're running a special right now. You can get a membership for one ninety nine, which is about a third of the regular price or a little bit more than a third. Uh, one ninety nine using the code uh, RNSM one nine nine. So short for ransom RNSM one nine nine. You can get access to the full thing. It's going to be coming out in print uh, next month. It'll be available online starting um, next week. Um, and so and it's also going to be incorporated into our uh, upcoming virtual event on um, cyber uh, on cyber risk and data privacy. So we're so Ali is going to be interviewing some of the the primary sources that she interviewed for the case study during our virtual conference, talking about both the case study and real life situations. So it's sort of a melding of, of, of the, both the case study and sort of a follow-up, if you will, on um, with some of the, her primary sources. So we're super excited about this. That sounds great, Dave. Uh, anything else uh, upcoming uh, you could uh, tell us about? Yeah, so uh, so after that, we've the next thing that's the next big thing really that's on our radar is we, we're going to have um, uh, a shorter form case study on like obviously ESG is an extremely hot topic right now. We just talked about it earlier, and what we're doing is we thought it would be useful to to spotlight and take a take a really in depth look at what one company is doing uh, from top to bottom on ESG. Uh, and we decided to look at FedEx. Um, FedEx has been uh, sort of a, a leader in the space. And a, I think how I would describe it is, is they've sort of shown the, a, a best practices method for establishing benchmarks, re- reachable benchmarks, and not uh, you know, getting the right stakeholders in the room, and then messaging stake, stakeholders in the in the right way. So we'll have um, that is going to be probably late February or early March. That's going to come out uh, on complianceweek.com. Um, and in conjunction, we are also developing a, a module learning on uh, sort of a I won't call it ESG for dummies, but but ESG for practitioners who aren't otherwise versed in ESG. So sort of sort of like a uh, ESG primer, if you will. So those will be coming out simultaneously around the end of February or the beginning of March. Now, Dave, I'd like to turn to the upcoming Compliance Week 2022 conference. Uh, where are we on that? And can you give us any updates on any of the attendees or events around that? Again, we are planning where all systems go for an in-person event for the first time in three years, uh, May 16th through 18th at the JW Marriott in Washington, D.C., our national conference. Uh, we So we actually have, we just in this last week, we booked our, uh, our, I guess what I would call our keynote 
uh, our keynote conversation. So we're going to have uh, two SEC commissioners. We're going to have Allison Heron Lee and Hester Peirce on the stage at the same time, uh, having a conversation about discuss- in discussing the SEC's priorities for the upcoming year. Also, these are two commissioners, as you know, they've got opposite stances on many issues. So it's going to be really fun to see the back and forth between these two on the same stage. Uh, you know, talking ESG, talking crypto, talking CCO liability. So there are, there's going to be a lot of topics that, uh, that will be on the table. And, you know, a really great part of this, too, is that there, there's going to be an opportunity for a Q&A uh, with, with both of them as part of this session so that the, uh, the practitioners in the audience will actually get to have their questions answered by one of these two SEC commissioners. So uh, we are grateful to the SEC for agreeing to this, and we are super excited about having, in particular, this session, but overall having our in-person event Again, live in D.C., first time in three years in May. Um, again, knock on wood that, uh, that there are no more variants of interest that pop up between now and then <laughs> in terms of COVID. So, um, so yeah, so we're, yeah we're, we're, we're pretty excited uh, about that. Well, speaking for the Compliance Week 2022 conference audience, there's a lot of excitement, Dave, and a lot of people are talking about you know, this is the first full conference since the pandemic, and a lot of people want to come for that reason. So I think you're really well positioned with presentations like uh, this one of the two SEC commissioners and your new venue to really just be as over the top as Compliance Week has ever been. And I'm certainly looking forward to that as well. Now let's uh, see if we can save the world a little bit and talk some sports because uh, we've had some uh, pretty big uh, sports news recently. And I want to start off with uh, what I thought was the greatest weekend of playoff football I had ever seen. Uh, all four games, the first three games were decided on the last play, and that's before we got to what I think was perhaps the best playoff game I've ever seen, which was the last game of Buffalo and uh, Kansas City. What were your kind of thoughts uh, really not having the Patriots in the playoffs me not having the Cowboys in the playoffs, it made it actually more enjoyable because I didn't have to care. I could just enjoy. So what did you think when you watched this weekend's uh, games? Yeah, I'm with you. It was just it was just terrific. The fact that all four games came down, either, you know, three of them were decided on last second field goals. One of them was decided in overtime after 25, I think it was 25 points scored in the final two minutes of the game. Um I'm I'm with you. This was the best full, like full, like slate of of NFL playoff games that I have ever seen. And then, and again, this didn't include either one of our teams, so we I didn't have any rooting interest. I just wanted to see quality football, and it was it was fantastic. But my big takeaway was the uh, the Bucks and the Rams, uh, and the the takeaway there. Brady was down again. You know, twenty. I think it was twenty-seven to twenty-seven to three, if I'm not wrong. Brought the Bucks all the way back, and in the last minute, the, the very the only thing that was preventing that game from going to overtime was a was exactly what happened it was a deep Sam Bradford pass to Cooper Cup of all people. The the most predictable thing in the world is what happened, and and then when when you look 
after the game, uh, Bruce Arians, the uh, Tampa coach, is talking about, oh, you know what, we, uh, yeah, we blitzed on that play, but you know there was some missed. You know, I think he identified one player individually, called someone out. I forget who it was. Uh, missed, missed the, uh, missed the call there, or missed the read, or um, so. It's not a great look for Bruce Arians. Not a great look for the Bucks. And I think all of this leads to uh, to Tom Brady and whether is he is he done with the NFL? Like it's disappointing to see him out of the playoffs at this at this stage because I really think that I really thought the Bucks were going to win that game. I you know I I from seeing Tom Brady the last twenty years in New England. Down twenty-seven to three—that's you know—that's nothing. We've seen that several times, including in the Super Bowl, that the Brady come back from that. But the way that game ended with such a uh, such a blunder on the Bucks' part, I think that Brady is—I uh, think he's done with the Bucks. To be honest, I think the, the some of the things that he's he's said in the aftermath of that game, you know, talking about his family, and then there was even one interview that I heard where his. I think his daughter was in the background, uh, and you could hear her talking in the background and um, talking about how he's got to consider what his what his family wants at this point. And he's forty four years old, and is you know I so so here's the, here's what I think. I don't think he's playing for the Bucks. Like I think that uh, the Bucks have a lot of cap problems. Gronk has talked about retiring. Um, Bruce Arians. I mean, if it were me, I'd fire him. Um, I don't think he and Brady get along very well. So, so if you're Tom Brady, do you decide then to go to yet another team for a shot at one more title, or do you decide, you know what, this is uh, this is it. I'm done here. I've I've proved my point. I've proved that I could win a Super Bowl without the Patriots, and now it's time to spend time with my family and oh by the way, grow my TB12 business. Um, so that was my. That was my biggest takeaway. I, I am looking forward to to this weekend's games as well, but uh, I, I think there's no arguing that last weekend was just tremendous entertainment. If you're in the, if you're a fan of of anything sports, I mean that was just you, you couldn't ask for anything more. So I don't know if it's Freudian slip or other, but uh, you actually called Matthew Stafford the quarterback of the Rams, Sam Bradford. Maybe it's just a throwback. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that. Yes, that was that that was yes. Did I say Bradford? Oh God, Bradford hasn't been for a couple of years now. But it wasn't Sam Bradford. It was Matthew Stafford. <laughs> um. So. So we're going to have to separately talk about the Kansas City Chiefs and the Buffalo Bills. But mine was yes. the Bengals. Uh, perhaps the most other than the Detroit Lions, long-suffering franchise in uh, pro football. Uh, I've never won a Super Bowl. They've been to two Super Bowls. The Lions won NFL championships before there was uh, the Super Bowl era. Um, But what the – so for the Cincinnati fans, I certainly uh, felt their um, excitement. But the thing that struck me about that game, Dave, was that it once again shows you the level of quality in the playoffs and that you don't have to play a perfect game, but you have to play a mistake-free game. And Tennessee went into that game, a seven-point uh, seven uh, favorite, playing at home, number one seed, had a week off, 
and made uh, some glaring basic mistakes, three fumbles. And they allowed Cincinnati to hang around and win the game. And that's, to me, uh, really pro football, that it's so close between teams that you, like I said, you don't have to be perfect because no one's perfect, but you have to be mistake-free. But we have to talk about Kansas City and Buffalo. Uh, 25 points, two minutes, uh, 13, uh, as uh, one of my podcasts was entitled, How Long Does It Take to Win an NFL Game? Well, we know the answer now, 13 seconds. Uh, I don't think anyone in America, except perhaps Patrick Holmes, thought they could tie that game. Uh, But they did. Uh, But Josh Allen played as fine a game as you could ever ask a quarterback to play. And um, unfortunately, there had to be a loser. But for pure excitement, I, I, I have not ever seen a playoff game. I think the Patriots win over the Falcons was probably more exciting Super Bowl win for me because they were down, as you noted, 28 to three. But that was the shootout of shootouts. Uh, the de- defensive guys, I was the defensive guy in football, and they were just gassed. I mean, they were out on the field and they were trying, but they had nothing left. And uh, you talked about Cooper Cup and outrunning, uh, was it a 65 yard pass uh, that uh, Matthew Stafford threw to him uh, for them? And, uh, but the, the Bills and the Chiefs, was uh, I just can't say enough about that game. It was uh, – and once again, showing Sean Payton, uh, I think they'll debate forever should he have squib kicked it or not. Uh, turns out he should have. Um, but what if they'd squib kicked it and something yeah, would have happened? Yeah. You know, then they said, see, that's why you always kick it out of the end zone and make him go 80 yards in 13 seconds. Because, of course, nobody can do that, except we know that's not true. So were you just on the edge of your seat for that game, or how did you feel about that game? Yeah, I, so I, I was in the same boat as you. I thought it was incredible. These are two, like, two quarterbacks. And keep in mind, too, Josh Allen, uh, this, from my, the context of my viewing experience, the last two times, because so the Bills beat the Patriots the week before, they had nine possessions, or no, sorry, seven possessions. I think it was seven possessions, seven touchdowns. Never, Patriots never stopped them. It was the Josh Allen show. Uh, the previous time the Patriots played the Bills, same thing. The, there were zero possessions in which the Bills did not score. So, and then after the after the playoff game, um, it was noted afterwards that Belichick went to Bill Belichick went to the Bills locker room to just to express to Josh Allen like, "Hey, man, you played a perfect game. I got to give you I got to give you your your kudos here." So, I mean, my takeaway was that. One, I don't think the Patriots are going to be in contention for an AFC title anytime soon <laughs> because we have two quarterbacks in Mahomes and Allen who are still in their, uh, I think, mid-20s. And two is I'm, I'm just excited to see them play again. The, the, I think the Bills and the, uh, and the Chiefs and possibly the Bengals within you know, the next two to three years, they're going to be – this is going to be an every year thing where these are unstoppable offenses with quarterbacks who they're not pocket passers. Once you get out of the pocket, you can't really game plan around that. Uh, and I think that's that, you know, you saw the last two minutes of, of that, of that game just showed you essentially, yes, the defenses were gassed, but you also can't game plan around a, a quarterback's athleticism and just pure ability. 
like the week before that, Josh Allen was he had I think it was nine seconds to throw because he scrambled so far out of the pocket against the Patriots, threw the ball. He essentially after the game acknowledged he was throwing it away, but he threw it to the back of the end zone and uh, the Bills tight end um, uh, Knox caught it for a touchdown on the back of the end zone. It looked incredible. It looked intentional. But at the, after the game, he said, oh, yeah, I was throwing that ball away. It's like, oh, come on, man. You, you, even when he's throwing it away, he's making the right decision. So early in his career, Josh Allen was – he showed that um, immaturity. He was very immature. He made a lot of mistakes. Uh, but he always had the talent. Now he's sort of combining the experience with the talent. And, you know, he and Patrick Mahomes, I think we're going to see this matchup for at, at least the next four or five years in the playoffs. And I'm, I'm you know – I'm all for it. Like, I, I don't think, like, I, I'm i a fan of what the Patriots are doing, but I don't see them, I don't see a scenario in which they, they're up to that level anytime soon. And, again, you might want to throw the Bengals in there, too, uh, because they've got a young quarterback and they've got three, no, two, two, at least two young stud receivers, great running back. They've got all the pieces to make a consistent, uh, consistent playoff run. You know, having gone – what was it, 20, no, 30, almost 30, 30 years. Am I doing that math right? Yeah, almost, yeah, 30 years between playoff victories. So, um, yeah, just, just excited. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you that uh, Mahomes and Allen is, is going to be a matchup to watch for years to come. Is it, is it going to be the next Brady Manning? Maybe, yeah. I'd like to now turn to the Hall of Fame. Um, because we had a couple of significant developments. Obviously, uh, David Ortiz, mm-hmm. big poppy, elected to the Hall of Fame, and I'm going to get to that in a moment. Uh, we also had uh, Barry Bonds and Roger Clements uh, were denied entry into the Hall of Fame for the 10th year, so uh, that's it for them. But I want to start with David Ortiz. Um, so I wanted to get have you as a Boston sports guy, both a writer and fan, what did David Ortiz mean to not just the Red Sox, but the city, and then then his role as a designated hitter and how great he was to make the Hall of Fame as the second designated hitter, uh, full-time designated hitter. So tell us about Big Poppy. He essentially, and I mean, if you go back, if you think back to the, the late 60s, that 1967 Red Sox team, uh, with Yaz, they call it the impossible dream. That, that team didn't win the World Series, but it reignited the interest in baseball in Boston. I won't say that Ortiz had the same impact, but it was similar. And it, but you, you really have to go back to, to the 2003 season when uh, the Red Sox fell just short of the World Series. They lost the Yankees in seven games in the ALCS. Then 04 was obviously their big breakthrough. And Ortiz was a huge part of that. Ortiz was a huge part of anything. Uh, I think I was I was working at the Boston Globe for a lot of those years and covering that those teams. And I remember we had a running photo gallery of all of David Ortiz's walk off hits, and it kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And and it was it was incredible the way I think in particular he was such an outsized personality. So he was somebody that you could relate to. He 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 laughed at uh at at he laughed at himself. He laughed at uh his teammates. You could see that he was having fun and he came through it seemed like almost every time when it mattered the most. 
he was he was electric when he was up in any big spot at Fenway. It was an electric atmosphere. Whether you were there or you were watching it at home, you were getting goosebumps just watching it. I still remember I was actually not at the game, the ALC, ALCS game, I believe, 2013 against the Tigers, uh, when he hit the Grand Slam that tied the game. And there's that famous photo of uh, Tory, Tory Hunter with his legs over the wall and the, the, the cop in the bullpen with his arms up. Uh, so that was, I mean, that was Ortiz. Like that's, that's Ortiz in, in a moment right there. And then, you know, that same year was the year of the, um, might've been, yeah, that was the year of the Boston Marathon bombings too. So that was, and I remember the first game after the bombings, it was Ortiz who came out of the dugout right before the game when they were honoring the, the first responders and said like, this, this is our bleeping city, and no one's going to take that from us. So that was, that, that was another defining moment that really made him bigger than baseball for, for Bostonians. Um, for, for, you know. Yeah, a couple of things. One is um, you talked about 2013, and it was certainly memorable. But you also talked about 2004. And what that really emphasized is the longevity of his career. Uh, it was, you know, you will probably never forget 04 because it took the monkey off your back forever. And then you won two more after that. So uh, you've got several now. And, you know, nothing can uh, take the place of having three, but nothing probably will ever take the place of 04 for you guys. Uh, and what that meant to not only every Bostonian, but every New Englander. And that's really what I remember as uh, the first time I really focused yeah. on him was 04. But he had a great, long career. And to do what he did in 2013, after having come up at the first part of the uh, – actually in the 90s, really spoke to, spoke to him. The other thing that I got to know him through is after he retired and became a commentator, particularly in the World Series games. So I got to see Houston in three World Series where he – is part of the post-game show. And um, it's English is not his first language, so sometimes he struggles a little bit. But what he talks about is not the analytics, but from the heart. And he's all, every comment he makes, he talks about yep. the batter's heart or the batter's head and the same with pitchers and that how you have to manage to the heart and head. And what struck me about those comments is that, it seemed to me that's the real David Ortiz. And if he was like that in the dugout, it really talked about why he was such a leader in the dugout and why he was such a leader for, you know, 10 plus years on the Red Sox. Uh, so I thought it was a, a great selection and the election and certainly well-deserved. And he, I think has even grown more now because we see him on the national stage uh, communicating with us in a way he obviously didn't when he was a player as a color commentator. So uh, a great shout-out to David Ortiz. Maybe let's end with um, Clements and Bonds and a lot of discussion around whether or not uh, they should have been disqualified. Uh, obviously, uh, Boston columnist Dan Shaughnessy made his thoughts on that very clear, unfortunately, in the context of David Ortiz and uh, yep. took a few shots for that. 
But uh, does this maybe put the end on the steroid era? Are we going to be debating this literally forever, Dave? Yeah, I think it's problematic. The problematic part of all of this is the fact that there's that the baseball writers are voting on this and that there's a clause that they have to that they're sort of required to consider about a player's character. And that calls into and that that sort of brings into play, do we want to disqualify player X from being considered for the hall because they took performance enhancing drugs. So I'm of the opinion that, you know, you, you, like we can, we can probably say with, with great certitude that Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, they cheated. They took performance enhancing drugs, but we, and then there are other people for whom we can say we're fairly confident. And there are others that say, we don't really think so, but we don't really know. So I'm of the opinion that you judge a player on what he did on the field and you put a plaque up in the hall of fame that says all the players in this wing, this was the steroid era of baseball. And you sort of like, if, if it's, if it's truly a museum, you're, you sort of are, aren't you then, aren't you obligated to tell the history of the game? And the steroid era is a big part of the history of the game. And if it's a museum, then in your, the idea is to give an accurate depiction of uh, this. These were the biggest things happening in the game. These were the biggest players of this era. Uh, then that's where they belong, you know, asterisk or not. But you would you do it in a way that acknowledges the era that they played in. I think that's the way to do it. But the way that it is currently voted on is it's problematic because, you know, in in the defensive baseball writers, they take this. I mean, I know for a fact they take this very seriously and perhaps, I don't know, to a degree that's maybe a little bit too, I don't know if too serious is the right word, but um, uh, they probably take it probably too literally, I I, I think I want to say. And as a result, then there are these, you know, there are some of the greatest players to ever play the game won't be in the museum that's dedicated to the, the baseball history. And that's not, I don't think that's the right, I don't think that's the right result that we're looking for as, as fans of baseball. So that's my, that's my take on that. I don't have a solution, uh, but that's my take. <laughs> well, Dave, as always, it's been a ton of fun. I wanted to uh, thank you again. And uh, I'm looking forward to continuing this conversation. Uh, I am Tom Fox. Thank you, Tom. I'm Dave Lee for it. It's been been fun talking. I can't wait to do it next month. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this episode of From the Editor's Desk. I've linked to several Compliance Week features in the show notes. First of all, the promo they're running for their annual membership, dropping the price down to $199 and information on Compliance Week 2022. I hope you'll join Dave and I again for another podcast at the end of February where we look at some of the articles from February and take a look at March in Compliance Week. Thanks again for listening.
you are interested in how ESG intersects with compliance, check out my new podcast, The ESG Report, also appearing on the Compliance Podcast Network.